Welcome to Get Paid for Your Pad, the number one podcast for Airbnb hosts and short-term rental professionals. You're listening to an episode of The Host Show. I am your host, Jasper Rivers, and we release a new episode of this show every single Monday. And in these episodes, I interview Airbnb hosts from all around the world to share their stories and provide tips and tricks on how to get started and be successful as an Airbnb host. Now, this episode is brought to you by Legends X, our 90-day short-term rental accelerator program that's designed to help you skill your hosting business by getting yourself out of the daily operations so that frees up your time so you can become the CEO of your business instead of the manager and really focus on those higher-level tasks that move the needle and allow you to grow. So for more information about Legends X and how to join, visit strlegends.com X. Now let's dive into today's episode. Enjoy the show. Get paid for your pet. Get paid for your pet. Get paid for your pet. Welcome to episode 550 of get paid for your pad today i have a very special guest on the show he is the founder and ceo of the empowered investor and also the founder of real estate tools a software company in the in the real estate space as well and we are going to talk about the economy the real estate market interest rates inflation all that good stuff there's a lot happening right now so jason uh jason hartman thanks for being here welcome to the show it's great to be back, Jasper, and great to be talking to you. We are in a time of tumultuous change, and uh, I'm looking forward to diving in and talking about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to get your perspective on what's happening now. Now, but you're you're an Airbnb host as well, right? Yes, I am only playing in that market in a very small way, so I by no means consider myself an expert on short-term rentals. We have delved into it a little bit for clients as well. And, you know, we've helped clients buy short-term rentals in just one market. Basically, what my business is, is I help people buy properties nationwide. Been doing that for 18 years now, where we have helped thousands and thousands of investors over the years buy properties in many, many markets nationwide, all long-term rentals. There's only one market where we have help them buy short-term rentals and have done pretty well with it. But of course, that short-term rental market is changing as we've talked about offline and, you know, we can go into that as well. So what, what's happening right now? Let's say, let's start with, with the real estate market. What, what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of prices, in terms of sales and, and everything else? Yeah. So sales activity is way down. Sales activity is down in some markets by almost 40%. So realtors, title companies, lenders, escrow companies, you know, all of these related industries to sales volume are definitely feeling the pinch. They are suffering because of that. And there are knock-on effects because when people buy properties, they also tend to buy furniture and appliances and paint and home improvement and, you know, hire contractors and landscaping and all sorts of things. And that's why 
real estate is such a big, incredibly important part of the economy and the government will do anything they can, Jasper, to stimulate the real estate market. However, more recently, our central bank, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have been trying to cool inflation and they have jacked up interest rates at a historic pace. And that has been a pretty painful prescription for the market. But one of the things that is incredibly important to understand, <laughs> and this is super important that everybody understand this, there is a huge difference between sales volume and sales prices. I have addressed sales volume so far, and that has caused some people to predict that there's going to be some big crash in prices. And these two are sometimes related, but they are not necessarily related. And we can dive in and, and, and really look into that today. There's a lot of sort of layers to peel off on that onion, if you will. And I'm happy to, to go down that path and do that. But we must understand there is, they are not necessarily connected. Sometimes they are. This time, they're not so far <laughs> very connected. Right. Well, let's talk about this. Like, you know, what, what's the, I mean, the interest rate has gone up from zero to what is it? Four and a half ish well, percent. Yeah, that's not the mortgage rate, but yes. You know, when we when we look at the 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 rates that sort of determine mortgage rates, but I think you know, for purposes of of your audience, it's more important to talk about mortgage rates because that's what you know everybody really feels. And so, you know, we saw mortgage rates that were literally at a five thousand year low. I kid you not. There is data on interest rates going back five thousand years. Okay, great book recommendation. I never got to interview him on my show, interviewed, you know, thousands and thousands of incredible guests over the years. But unfortunately, this author passed away. And the book is called Debt, The First 5,000 Years by the late David Graeber. It's an excellent read. I would highly recommend it. And so during the COVID era, we saw incredible efforts by the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world to stimulate the economy by basically making money free. And the cost of money went to zero for all intents and purposes. Why do I say that? Because when you look at the inflation rate versus the cost of money rate, the cost to borrow it, you have to take those two things into account. And so if the inflation rate is, for example, 5%, and the interest rate on a mortgage is 3%, then you're getting paid 2% to borrow the money because you're borrowing below the rate of inflation. So that's a negative interest rate. You're getting paid to borrow, essentially. And that's an incredible deal. It made a lot of people, including myself, very rich during the COVID era. And now that time is actually still with us. I know a lot of people might think, are you kidding me, Jason? No, it's not still with us because now rates are much higher. No, it is still with us, actually, because the stated inflation rate is, you know, it keeps moving around. So I'll just use a sort of a, a, a reasonable estimation of the consumer price index at 8%. Okay, let's go with 8% as the CPI, you know, bumps up and down each month. There's a new report. 
but let's go with 8%. Well, you can, you can borrow on a mortgage at a little less than 6%, okay? So you're still getting paid to borrow money. We still have negative interest rates. And there is a school of thought that as long as we have negative interest rates, it will be impossible to tame inflation. And the Federal Reserve, their target inflation rate is 2%. Now, Powell, Jerome Powell, during the COVID era said he didn't care about 2% anymore. It was out the window. Okay. And what the Fed is trying to do, because we live in a managed economy, unfortunately, I don't like this. I, I think it's it's bad. I don't really think there should be a central bank. I think the the market forces should set the cost of money and the cost of borrowing. But we have what we have, and it's not likely to change anytime soon. So the central planners that run the economy at the Federal Reserve and you know the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan and all of the central banks around the world, they coordinate or you could say collude <laughs> because they do. And they're basically trying to manage what's called the Phillips curve. And the Phillips curve is this economic indicator that balances inflation with unemployment. And they want to get to a 2% inflation rate, but keep unemployment reasonable as well so that people can get a job. And what they're literally trying to do now, they have stated this, and it, you know, this is the problem maybe with central planning, one of many, is they are trying to make people unemployed. They keep saying the unemployment rate is too low. We've got to put you out of a job, okay? We've got to make you unemployed to fix the economy. Because when you have very low unemployment and you have wage inflation where salaries keep going up, it is almost impossible to tame the inflation beast when you have that. Because you know, the classic example of inflation is a increased supply of currency units, in our case dollars, chasing a limited supply of goods and services. And with the supply chain constraints that we had over the past few years, and you know, it caused Chairman Powell to constantly use the word transitory, to say inflation is transitory. It's just a result of supply chain issues. And as soon as those bottlenecks loosen up and the supply chain is healthy again, where goods and services can move through the economy more quickly and around the world more efficiently again, then inflation will go down. Now, look, to be fair to Powell, some of that was certainly true. He was not wrong about that completely. But Anybody with any degree of common sense would just have to know that when you pump trillions and trillions and trillions of new dollars into any system and you have a limited supply of goods and services, you're going to have inflation because you have more dollars chasing that limited supply. And so all the suppliers are going to raise their prices, obviously. And that's just the way supply and demand works. It's the most fundamental law of economics. So the Fed is in a very difficult spot right now. They have completely fucked this up. <laughs> I'm just going to use the word, okay, because it's punctuation. They have messed up so badly by letting the economy run hot for way too long. They should have raised rates much sooner. They should have tightened the money supply much sooner but they didn't.
And so now we are all paying for it with increased inflation. Now, listen, philosophically, I hate inflation, but from my own personal standpoint and my own personal greed, I love inflation. And for our investors, I love inflation because I teach a strategy called inflation induced debt destruction, which I trademarked many, many years ago. And it is the hidden wealth creator that helps people with their real estate investments create wealth by basically letting inflation pay off their debt. And very few people actually understand it or pay attention to it, but it is really an incredibly powerful tool in addition to all of the other benefits of income property inflation induced debt destruction is a real bonus for that so you mentioned you know as long as there's a negative interest rate you're essentially let's say let's just take an example let's say you get a mortgage at six percent and inflation is eight percent right yep you're paying the six percent per year but then your your debt your debt shrinks by essentially by eight percent right so you're that's why you're saying like we're making money if you're and that's then I guess we're assuming that our income is going to go up by 8% per year along with inflation, right? For that to work. Well, we don't know actually because we're not concerned about our personal income in that case. When it applies to an income property, we're concerned about the property's income. Okay. So to get paid 2% to borrow in a in a sort of simplified example here. Let's assume that you could own a property with no insurance and no property taxes and no maintenance expenses. Now, we all know that's impossible, but those expenses aren't really very high. So it's not, you know, it's not a completely out of whack idea to consider that example. If you had a property with no income and no expenses, no insurance, property taxes or maintenance costs, okay? So you had no income and no expenses, and you could own a property and get a mortgage, if you could borrow at 6% and inflation was 8%, you would be getting paid 2% to borrow. Now, the one thing we didn't say yet that it's really important that we say is that the real inflation rate is much higher than the stated inflation rate. The consumer price index, the most widely used measure for inflation is a complete scam. It's totally manipulated in three major ways, weighting, substitution, and what's called hedonic indexing, okay? And I can go into that if you want, but suffice it to say it's manipulated. I believe that the real inflation rate is about 15 to 17%. Now, why is there a debate about this? Because everybody has their own personal inflation rate because we all spend it differently, okay? But I would say for most people, the real inflation rate is about 15 to 17% in real life. But let's just go with the government's manipulated down number and call it 8%, okay? So you would make 2%. You would get paid 2% to borrow in the example I gave you. Now, in real life, though, the property does have expenses, and it also hopefully has income. And usually the income will vastly outweigh the expenses. So this is a pretty incredible deal for the investor because you will typically make much more income than you have in expenses. And so you will not only make money on inflation-induced debt destruction, the negative interest rate, getting paid to borrow, but you'll also make money on the positive cash flow, the tax benefits, the leverage, all of the other benefits of income property. Right. So essentially what you're saying is, yes, 
mortgage rates have gone up, but it's still it's still a good time to get a mortgage and invest in into real estate, even at the current prices. Well, that depends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what does it depend on? Well, it depends on many things. It depends on number one, do you have a property that can produce income? Okay, that's the first thing. And number two, what type of real estate market are you investing in? If there are, there are three major types of markets that I've been talking about for the last 18 years, linear markets, cyclical markets, and hybrid markets, and they all act very differently. For example, in a country as large and diverse as the United States, there is no such thing as a national real estate market. You know, we all hear the sound bites on TV or you know, on a podcast or the radio or whatever, you know, where they talk about the housing market. Well, I don't know what the housing market is. I don't know what that means. Does that mean Los Angeles, Miami, Seattle? Does it mean Memphis, Kansas City, Dallas or Austin? It simply is not a thing. There is no national housing market. You, you just can't say that. Now, in a really small country, like I remember my first trip back to Europe as an adult rented a car and drove all around Europe on that trip, drove about 3,000 miles on that trip. And I remember one day, myself and my friend drove through Luxembourg, an entire country. And it didn't take very long <laughs> because it's a small country. Now, if it, Luxembourg has a national housing market. The United States does not, okay? The United <laughs> States is just too big and too diverse to have a national housing market. So cyclical markets are the markets that get all the attention. There are the expensive Northeastern markets, Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, et cetera. They're the expensive South Florida markets where I live, you know, Miami. I live in Palm Beach, just north of that. So this, this is all cyclical. There are the expensive West Coast markets, San Diego, LA, San Francisco, although San Francisco's had some different problems of late, but still a cyclical market, Seattle, et cetera, right? Those are cyclical markets. These are the high flying markets that get all the attention. But the vast majority of the country is a linear market. These are just boring markets that have really good cash flow. They don't have big ups and downs in prices, and they're the best markets in which to invest. And we've been helping investors invest in these markets for 18 years now. So there, there is a, a big difference between those markets. The cyclical markets are still, they've been feeling a lot of pain and they've got more to come in my opinion. They are, they are going to continue to suffer. But there are many ways to slice and dice the real estate market, right? You know, you not only linear cyclical or hybrid market, but price, segment within that market, right? So are you buying, you know, in the high end market? Are you buying in the, in the middle? Are you buying below the median price in a given market? What product type are you buying? Single family? Are you buying new single family, old single family? You know, are you buying condos? Like, like there's a, a lot of different things to consider, of course, right? But linear cyclical and hybrid, understanding those three major markets is a really good start. Okay. That makes sense. I guess my next question is what if you, so right now mortgage is 6%, right? Let's say I get a 30 year fixed mortgage right now. All right. I buy a property and, but now inflation actually goes back down to 2%. Good now question. I'm paying, yeah. Now I'm paying 4%. Yep. 
Well, the likelihood is, if it, as history with history as our guide, if inflation goes down that much, rates will also go down a whole bunch because when inflation cools, there is no longer a reason to have high rates. The reason to have high interest rates is to cool inflation. So those two are correlating indicators, right? The reason we have high rates now, and historically they're not even that high, but we think they're high because we came off an extreme low. So, you know, they, they feel high, right? But they're really not that high, historically speaking, it is because uh, the Fed is trying to increase unemployment and cool the economy. And, you know, they're doing it. It, it is happening. Sure. But if I get a, a 30 year fixed of 6% and then the inflation goes down, the interest rate might go down as well, but I'm stuck with the 6%. Well, no, you're not. So, you're going to refinance. I'm going to refinance. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, you know, one of the things I love about income property, I always say income property is the most historically proven asset class in the entire world. Because think of it this way, you know, we've all entered into agreements with people and companies over the years. And sometimes the other party breaks the agreement. And we call them a lot of bad names, you know, to keep it kind of clean. I'll just call them weasels. Okay. These are people you don't want to deal with people that don't keep their word. They're bad people, right? You don't want to do business with them because they break their agreements. But with income property, the beauty is we get to constantly renegotiate our agreement. Okay. When we buy the property, we agree to one deal, but that's not the forever deal with stocks, with precious metals, with cryptocurrency. That is the forever deal when you buy it, because you have locked in what the deal is. Okay, you've locked in a price. And the only way you're going to make money is to sell at a higher price with those assets I mentioned. Okay, stocks, one little caveat is you might have a dividend paying stock, you might make a little bit of money off dividends, but it's not going to be much. Okay, with with income property, though, it's a multi dimensional asset class, and it's a renegotiable asset class. So we can agree to one deal. And then later, when circumstances change, we can just make a new deal. We can refinance the property, we can improve the property, we can decide to rent it out on different structure. For example, we might buy it as a long term rental and convert it to a short term rental or we might convert it to a lease option or rent to own deal and increase our income that way. We might decide, hey, you know, we should really remodel the kitchen. We could do it cheaply and it would really increase the income quite a bit or the value quite a bit, right? We can refinance and, and change the mortgage and change the debt stack underneath the property, right? So we can always renegotiate a lot of things. Another beautiful thing about that is that it's income property is one of the very few assets where we can acquire the asset and then later, sometimes very shortly thereafter even, get all of our money back out of the asset, but still own the asset. That's incredible. If you think about, you know, that really is an incredible thing. You can't do that with many other things. <laughs> so. It has special multi-dimensional characteristics, and that's yeah. why it, that's why it's such a, a proven asset class. Can you explain that a little bit more, like how that works with like getting your cash back out? Yeah, sure. It's just a simple cash out refinance. So and, and we buy the property that? at one price, 
we get certain terms on that that mortgage and then we refinance the property later and we pull our cash back out of it but we still own it mhm does that for that to work like does the value of the asset have to go up well the value has to go up if we want to keep the same loan to value ratio so if we put 20% down and we finance 80% of it on the purchase then it needs to go up in value by at least 20% in order to make that deal work right but we might have put more down on the purchase or you know it it all depends right on how we structured the financing when we bought it but simplistically yes it would have to go up in value if we want the same loan to value ratio in the future yeah. you know i mean i've noticed since i was very very young that investing in a house was a good idea just looking at you know my parents buying a house and then 10 years later looking at how much it was worth i was like wow this is you know this when i was little i was thinking this is, sounds like getting rich while you sleep almost right so i've always been a big believer in investing in real estate and i've owned real estate for for 15 years now but you know i think there's a lot of like because the interest rates have gone up so much now i think a lot of people are hesitant to get into the real estate market right to actually purchase and it's also with the current interest rate, you need to you need to put like the mortgage is going to be a higher percentage of your income than it was like, you know, a couple of years ago. Right. So is that, you know, going to push prices down, you think, or not? Well, you're talking about for buyers in the general market. Yeah. Or are you talking about yourself? I, I, no, no, just the general market. The general market, just okay. General good. US markets. Yeah, this is a great time to look at a couple of charts because I got some really good data for Let's you here. So I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to show you before I click share, I'm going to show you the most important chart in real estate. Folks, like pay attention because this is the most important chart you will ever see in real estate. Ready? Wow. Well, you already <laughs> build it up here. I'm building it up because <laughs> it's important. The, here it is. For the listeners, you can you can watch on YouTube or on Spotify so you can actually see what we're looking at here. Yeah. And and I'll explain the chart. Okay. So what this chart is is basically a chart of the existing mortgages held by tens of millions of homeowners in the United States. Okay? And what it shows us here is that about 25% of all mortgages in the country are below 3%, below 3%. 285,000 mortgages in the country are below 2%. 4.7 million mortgages are below 2.5%. And 13.1 million are between 25 and 3%. This is incredible. This has never happened before. This is a first time thing. Okay. Now let's go up a little bit. Let's take another percentage point. 65% of all mortgages in the country are below 4% interest. Think about it. If the official inflation rate is 8%, if these people live in the houses, and use them as their own personal residence and don't produce any income from the property. They are not only getting a free place to live, but they're also getting paid 4% every year 
to borrow the money based only on the official rate of inflation if they're one of the 65% that have a mortgage below 4%, not the people that are doing even better below 3%, but just below 4 okay? They are creating an incredible amount of wealth for themselves. Here's the thing I want you to understand. Well, let me ask you a question about this. Do you own something or have some loved one in your life that is worth more to you than they are to someone else? I would say yes. Yeah, everybody would answer yes to that because <laughs> you have something that you own, a collectible item, or not that you own them, but a person like a, a child or, or, or a pet, maybe an animal that you love so much, but you know, a stranger doesn't love them, right? They don't, that's not, they're not worth anything to them. They're just another dog or person, you know, it's no big deal, right? But they're special to you, right? And, and so the thing people have to understand is this, this is critically important, critical thing I'm about to say, super important. Certain assets are worth more to the people that own them than they are to the people that might buy them. Why is that important? Because it causes hoarding. And these properties with these low mortgages that are not transferable to a new buyer are worth more to the people that have them than the house. So, so here's an example. If someone has a house that's worth $500,000 and it has a mortgage at 3% interest, that mortgage is part of the asset. But upon sale, the buyer doesn't get that asset. In fact, the asset evaporates into thin air. So the seller loses the asset, but the buyer won't pay more for that asset because they don't get it. It doesn't transfer. There's something called a due on sale clause, which you know that the Supreme Court upheld decades ago. So the mortgage does not transfer to the new buyer. It's gone. So this causes hoarding. And this is exactly the market we're in right now, where so many people, millions and millions of people, have these incredibly cheap mortgages, and they just don't want to part with them. They don't want to sell the properties. And if you want to have a real estate crash that some are predicting, there is one critical ingredient that you must have to have a real estate crash. And that is a massive number of tens of millions of distressed homeowners. We don't have that. In fact, we're not even close to having that. We are so far away from that that we may be the furthest away from that idea that we have ever been in history. Let me tell you one more thing. This chart is the most important chart in real estate that's up on the screen is showing you the interest rates of existing mortgages. But on my show, I always use the saying, you can't hear the dogs that don't bark. There's a dog here that isn't barking because you don't see it on the screen. And here's the dog. 43% of all homes in the country have no mortgage at all. Those people are pretty unlikely to go into distress because they have no mortgage. These people, 65% of them with mortgages below 4%, they've got an incredible bargain. And another 24% below 3% have an even better bargain. They're very unlikely to encounter any distress. 
So let's look at the foreclosure rate. Typically, at any time, just typically throughout recessions and boom times, of all mortgages existing at any given time, about 1% of all the mortgages will be in some stage of default. Someone is 30 days late on their payment, someone is 60 or 90 days late on their payment, or someone is entered into the foreclosure process where a notice of default has been filed and the lender is getting serious about taking the property back. Some are the day before foreclosure where the only way to rescue the house is at the courthouse steps, right? All different stages of default. Typically about 1% of all mortgages are in some stage of default. Right now, only half a percent of all mortgages are in some stage of default. But wait, there's more, because that doesn't even give you all the information. What's important to understand is, say, for example, we look back at 2008 during the Great Recession. At that time, the default rate increased and the foreclosure rate increased and times were obviously very difficult. But what was different then, significantly different, is that the ability for that homeowner to get themselves out of the default had evaporated. It just wasn't there. But right now, it's very different. The likelihood of these half a percent, which is half of the normal rate, actually going all the way through to foreclosure is extremely low. Because if they simply put their house up for sale at any reasonable price, it's probably going to sell. Now, the market certainly isn't as hot as it used to be, and sales volume is much lower than it used to be, about 35, 37% in some areas, at the worst areas. Now, in some areas, it's not that bad, and sales volume is chugging along, but it's still lower than before, okay? So let me give you a metaphor that'll make this really easy to understand the market. And let's use the kitchen sink, okay? Because the kitchen sink is a really good example. Let me show you another chart. This is the chart of current housing inventory. And it shows you now that we've got about 465,000 homes for sale in the United States. Now, back in 2015, when we were in a normal market, not a bad market, just a normal market. I mean, we all remember 2015. It wasn't that long ago. There was a presidential campaign going on, you know, and, and a year later, Trump actually won the election. And we, you know, we all kind of know what happened just to remember that time. Okay. But 2015 was certainly a vibrant, healthy market. We were selling lots of properties back then. I mean, business was quite good. And there were about 1.2 million homes for sale in the United States back then. So inventory today is substantially lower than it was back then. Now, when inventory got really low during the COVID era, you know, it got down to about 243,000 at the lowest point. So inventory is definitely higher than it was back then. But compared to what is the question? I mean, that was like a complete anomaly. Okay, that, that isn't even a comparison. So here's the typical headline in the sensationalist, soundbite-driven, non-intellectual news media. 
Inventory has increased. I mean, inventory is up by almost 200,000 more homes than it was before. Okay, so what? But what they didn't tell you is that it's still less than half of what it is in a healthy market, a normal market, right? You know, but you, you can spin a headline any way you want, right? But let's look at the kitchen sink because the kitchen sink is a good way to understand it. So inventory now is, you know, maybe what most people would consider about 40% of normal, okay? You know, approximately, okay? So with the kitchen sink, you have the faucet, and out of the faucet comes new inventory, houses coming onto the market, new listings, okay? That's the new water coming into the sink. And in the sink, you have existing inventory, right? You have the sink filled about 40% of the way. It's not filled to the top. There's not very much inventory. It's filled up about 40% water in the sink. And then you have the drain. And the drain represents buyers, the absorption rate, properties being sold and taken off the market because they've sold. So the drain right now is a little bit plugged up. It's only about 60% open. Well, a little less than that, maybe 55%. It's about half open. Okay. Or no, 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 bad comparison. 37. So, 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 you know, if we assume that sales activity nationally is down by about 30%, give or take, it's actually not quite even that bad, but let's just go with 30%. So the drain is 70% open and 30% plugged. There's 40% of the water in the sink and there is a trickle of water coming out of the faucet, new inventory, okay? Why isn't there more inventory? Well, it's because of the prior chart. <laughs> These people simply don't wanna turn on the faucet. They don't wanna sell their houses because they've got those super cheap mortgages. So they're just holding them. And think of how long, you know, I have long said that this is the poison pill the Federal Reserve put into the real estate market. Now poison pill in terms of if you're a home buyer, it's a poison pill, but if you're a home owner or an investor, it's actually quite good for you because these people have 28 to 29 years left on these super cheap mortgages. And this will constrain inventory for literally decades to come. These people will not be motivated to sell until they can get a mortgage for less, the same as the same or less than the current mortgage they have. That's always going to be their analysis. The sink is unlikely to fill up. And even with sales volume being down, inventory is still extremely scarce. One more thing, and maybe we'll wrap it up with this. For the first time ever, possibly, at least the first time in my multi-decade career, we have this dichotomy in the market. On one side, we have new homes and builders. And on the other side, we have resale homes and homeowners. When we looked at the most important chart in real estate, we were looking at homeowners, not builders, because builders don't have that cheap long-term debt on their properties. And during the COVID era, when demand was so high, they started to try and ramp up their machine and build more properties. And some of those properties are starting to hit the market and more will continue to hit the market. And you will see, well, we're already seeing it, but 
a good amount of builder motivation and builder incentives where builders want to unload inventory. And so some people say, well, that's going to crash the market. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. Because builders, first of all, don't have that much inventory in comparison with the overall real estate market. I mean, the overall real estate market is about 140 million homes. Builders, like what they're going to deliver over the next year or two in terms of new inventory is like a drop in the bucket. It's very small amount. But they will be motivated to sell those properties because they don't have long-term debt. And some of them are being built as build, what's called build for rent. And that number actually right now has exceeded the number of build for sale. And I think that's also a, a new first, okay? Because institutional investors want to buy these properties directly from the builders because they have really strong belief in the long-term buy and hold rental market, okay? So you're going to see some softening around the edges of the new home builder inventory. But here's the thing. In terms of our clients and the typical long-term buy and hold investors, that doesn't matter very much. Why? Well, because the properties those builders are delivering are, they tend to be more expensive properties. Builders can't make money selling cheap entry-level homes, so they don't build them. In fact, they haven't really built them in 14 years. So just show me builders building $250,000 to $300,000 homes, and there's like hardly any of them right? Most of these properties that builders are delivering are more expensive. They're $600,000, $700,000. And they don't make sense as long-term rental properties anyway. So that's not really an issue for the long-term buy and hold investor because the long-term buy and hold investor wants to buy entry-level housing. And that's not to any great degree builder inventory. I mean, there's a little bit of it and we sell it to our clients. You know, we have that type of inventory in our network through the Empowered Investor Network. But overall in the broad market, there's very, very little builder inventory in those low price ranges. So I hope that makes sense. Questions or thoughts? Yeah, I guess my conclusion is real estate prices are not going to come down because if you have a mortgage, the mortgage is the asset. So we sell it. And if you if you don't have a mortgage, then you don't really have an incentive to sell as well. So well, I, I guess that's my say, conclusion. Yeah, I, I didn't quite say prices wouldn't come down. Okay, <laughs> I don't want people to hear that's that. That's my conclusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, in the linear markets, those markets are likely to hold up very well, and they have been holding up very well. Okay, in the cyclical markets, the more expensive markets, those markets are suffering and are going to suffer more. Okay, because there's more of that builder inventory that's going to hit those markets. You know, it's, it's just a different thing in the more expensive properties. But overall, is there going to be some big crash? Well, when you listen to the housing statistics, remember, they're lumping the whole country together. Mm -hmm. And the Case-Shiller Index, the most widely cited index, profiles 20 markets. And guess what? Of those 20 markets... 75% of them are expensive cyclical markets. Only 25% would be classified as linear or hybrid markets that would be markets we would want to invest in anyway. So it's, it's severely weighted toward these higher price markets that are softening more so, okay? But the thing is, look, 
market timing in any market, it, not just real estate, stocks, crypto market, you know, precious metals, whatever, really tends not to work. I mean, it has been proven over and over through decades and decades of research that people who try to time the market fail overall. Some get lucky. There's a few stories here and there. Sure, of course, right? But overall, if you call yourself an investor, then you should be investing because that's what investors do. They invest, right? You buy good, prudent properties and you hold them so that when the market shifts and there's a capital appreciation opportunity, you are there, you're in the market. But in the meantime, you're simply investing for yield. If, if people went to my website, jasonhartman.com, and they clicked on the properties page, they could see actual performance of properties that show projected return on investment exceeding 20% annually, even in this market because it's a multi-dimensional asset class. You make money in many ways through leverage, through mortgage paydown, through positive cash flow, and through appreciation. But when you put money into an asset and expect appreciation, that's not investing. That's speculation. Okay? Yep. That is investing is oriented toward yield. That's what investors invest for. And when appreciation comes, hey, great, they can spend it as well as the next guy. It's, it's awesome, but it's the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. It's not the main reason we invest. Awesome. I have one last question for you. I remember in the 2008 financial crisis, like I was actually working in the financial markets back then. So I remember one of the reasons that we had a massive crash was because people were getting all these like arms, right? And the, yep. these, these rate adjustable rate mortgages where it's like, yeah, you pay 3% for the next year or two, but then goes up to five, right? And the whole sub subprime market back then, is that is that still common practice or is no. that no longer the case? No, not at all. The mortgage underwriting over the last 15 years has been extremely conservative. Anybody who's taken out a mortgage knows this. They know they had to jump through hoops the, the lenders have really overcorrected. I think they've been too strict, okay, coming out of the Great Recession. And there have been, you know, some articles that I've read that, you know, the number of adjustable rate mortgages is increasing. And some people have tried to make a big deal out of this. Look, at we live in a world of clickbait. The videos on YouTube that get the clicks are the ones that say sensational stuff, negative stuff. That's what people want to hear, right? Because we have a, a predisposition a survival predisposition to look for that in our environment, right? That's what made us survive all these eons before. But the reality is, is that number one, the, the number of adjustable rate mortgages in the market today is a very small number compared to back then leading up to the Great Recession. But number two, and this might be the most important part, is that the arm of today is not the arm of the past. It's a very different adjustable rate mortgage. Back then, they would qualify people on what's called the teaser rate. And that teaser rate was much lower than the real, what's called the fully indexed rate of that mortgage. And so when the mortgage adjusted, they, they got 3-1 arms or 5-1 arms, meaning they would, they would adjust in three or five years. When they adjusted, people got what they call payment shock. And they simply couldn't afford those houses. 
they got in on a teaser rate and you know the lenders just wrote these loans and gave the mortgages out irresponsibly and it was a complete disaster so really i guess three factors there number one the arm is different than it was number two there's a much lower number of arms adjustable rate mortgages and number three the underwriting standards for those adjustable rate mortgages are just massively different than they were back then there's no comparison because the lenders have really been very careful actually too careful look when when you have a default rate on mortgages of only half a percent whereas normal the default rate is one percent you know that the lenders are being too careful they should actually be a little more liberal in giving out mortgages they can absorb a default rate of one percent that's the normal rate okay they've just overcorrected and they've still they're still overcorrecting you know that the pendulum was way too liberal and they were giving out stupid loans but now it's still even now 15 years later still too conservative they really should loosen a little bit more awesome jason i appreciate you going on the show i've learned a lot i'm sure uh if you're listening to this and if you didn't learn anything on this podcast episode then well that means you must be a pretty you're not paying attention topic (laughs) yeah i appreciate man like let everybody know where they can find you uh, and what, yeah. you know, what services you offer and all that. So a, a lot more information. I developed my own index for real estate valuation called the Hartman Comparison Index or the HCI. And I really would encourage people to just learn about that. Go to my YouTube channel, go to my podcast. My, my main podcast is called The Creating Wealth Show. But you can also find me on YouTube or any podcast platform. Just type Jason Hartman. That's J-A-S-O-N-H-A-R-T-M-A-N. And also jasonhartman.com is my main website. And you can find me there on social media, Instagram, jasonhartman1. But the podcast and YouTube channel and, and maybe Instagram for those small, short clips and reels would be very handy for people. Awesome. Before we let you go, are you down to make a prediction? You, sure. I think I've made several already. <laughs> but <laughs> All right. One year from now, where's the, the government measures of inflation, CP, the CPI? Where do you think it's going to be higher or lower? Mm, oh, that's a tough one. So a year from now, one disclaimer I want to make about predictions is that there's one guy on YouTube who makes all these big leaps and logics. I've tried to get him on my show because I want to just you know, expose his leaps and logics, but he won't come on my show, right? And, you know, he's always talking about how the market is crashing and it's all over and all this stuff. And and here's what's interesting about that is that this guy, he has been predicting a market crash for years, okay? Now, if people took his advice and didn't buy properties, they missed a couple years. And, but now what's interesting is he's saying, I'm right. Look what happened. The market has cooled off, sales are down, lots of new home inventory hitting the market, et cetera, right? But he wasn't really right. It's just that the circumstances changed radically. He didn't know the Fed would increase interest rates at the, at the, most, the fastest pace in history. He didn't know that would happen, okay? And now he's taking credit for it as though I predicted this. No, he did not predict that. Okay, he was predicting a crash based on existing circumstances. And based on that, he was massively wrong because he doesn't even have a crash now. 
<laughs> okay? And, and interest rates have more than doubled. So it's just ridiculous. So here's what I mean when I say that. If we enter into World War III, which sadly is becoming more and more possible, you know, if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, right? If there's some extraordinary event, I don't know, you know, all bets are off. I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But if things sort of stay the way they are now, and interest rates sort of hover around where they are now, I think inflation will be lower in a year. And, you know, if I had to pick a number, I would say the CPI would be around, you know, maybe 5%, which is still much higher than the Fed wants it to be. But still, it's understated versus the true inflation rate. But yeah, if we if we you know, if they sort of stick with what we have now, I'd, I'd say inflation is definitely going to cool and unemployment will increase a little bit. But I don't think it'll be too much because it's been really stubborn in their attempts to increase unemployment. You know, labor is just very strong, frankly. But yeah, I'd, 5% would be my number. What do you think? Boom. I'm writing it down. Yeah. One year from now, I we'll see if back. I'm right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just for the fun of it, I'm going to say it's higher. Okay. What do you, what's your number? All right. I'll say, uh, I'll say seven. Seven percent. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One year from now, I'll put it on my calendar. Let's remember this. Hey, yeah. Appreciate it, man. Learned so much. And yeah, hope to uh, have you back on the show in the future. And good luck with, with everything that you do. All right. Happy investing, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Get Paid for Your Pad, the number one podcast for Airbnb hosts and short-term rental professionals. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you want to learn more about hosting on Airbnb and building a short-term rental business, then go ahead and subscribe to our daily email newsletter at getpaidforyourpad.com. And if you're just starting out on Airbnb, make sure to download our free Airbnb starter guide at getpaidforyourpad.com forward slash get started if you enjoy this podcast make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on apple podcast for a chance to win lifetime access to the short-term rental profit academy our starter course for anybody who wants to start an airbnb business every month we select one random reviewer and give that person access to the course um, so if you want to have a chance to win access to the course, uh, please leave us a review and then uh, you might uh, join our program pretty soon. So thank you for listening. Check back every Monday for a new episode of The Host Show and every Friday for an episode of SDR Conversations of the Get Paid for Your Pad podcast. Get paid for your pet. Get paid for your pet.